So there's this reoccurring thing in my life that I always find incredibly funny, probably more than I should. That is, I always get a kick out of discovering that some item I use every day has this forgotten original purpose that apparently has been totally lost on me my entire life. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? You're cruising some BuzzFeed 10 things you probably don't know about blank list instead of doing your job, and you discover that the original purpose of those lines on the red Solo cup are for measuring different kinds of drinks, for example, which blew my mind in college, or that the little pocket on your jeans that seems completely useless was actually designed to store pocket watches back in the day to keep them nice and snug, and you just never knew. I mean, I don't know why, but I just eat that stuff up. This moment of discovery of what I have apparently never known blows my mind way more than it ever probably should. Let me give you some examples just to show you what I'm talking about. This one came to my attention a while back. The pasta spoon. My name for it, apparently the actual names for most items get lost on me too. Um, I've used this a lot over the years because I just love carbs. Perfectly designed for scooping noodles, it seems like it was thought through with its purpose in mind, right? But then there's this hole in the bottom. And I never really knew what it was for. I kind of just assumed it was for uh, draining liquid. That is, until I learned that it was actually for this. I'm not sure if you knew this, but this is actually intentionally designed for measurement purposes. The hole is supposed to be something you slide pasta through and whatever it fits is exactly one serving for one person of pasta. <laughs> Am I right? Or one of my favorites from history, margins on notebook paper. See, if you grew up in the modern age, margins are for things like notes, citations, for me, doodling in class. But their original purpose, I'm not sure if you know this, was actually related to rats. Back in the day, rats and mice roamed freely everywhere, which is my hell. Um, and people discovered that they really enjoyed eating paper, including notebooks with important information in them. So margins were originally designed to protect the important parts of your writings on paper by giving rats a little paper to munch on along the edges so they didn't get to the center where you actually wanted to protect. Pretty neat and gross, obviously. And then one final one for today, the soda can top. I mean, I always hated these things. They never, I never had long enough nails to get underneath them. You know what I'm talking about? I could never open it without hurting myself, essentially. And I also just never questioned why it was designed this way. It had two small holes and it seemed just like a pain until someone showed me a picture of this. See, I never known that the idea of these stupid tops had this intentional design built into it. They were created to be opened, rotated over the hole, and then that little hole actually becomes a holder for your straw. I'm probably the only one here whose mind is completely blown by that, but I think it's fascinating. I mean, there are so many of these. I have hundreds of examples that I could bore you with. And each time I discover a new one, it just makes me giggle. It interests me because it highlights a theme for me as a human being 
That is that we are creatures of assumed ritual, routine, and habit. We just have this tendency to develop ways of doing things over years or generations that we hold on to even when we've forgotten why we do them or what they were for in the first place. Which is really funny with things like pasta spoons. But it can also lead us to lose what something, a ritual, a habit, or a tool was intended to do for us. It's why, it's original purpose. It can lead us to forget these things and then to miss out on the intended benefit that it was designed to have. And this is so true in religion, perhaps more than anything else. Whether it's church on Sunday, prayer, sacrament, whatever, we have a tendency to forget the why of our practices when it comes to religion. And in doing so, to so often lose out on what religion and spirituality was intended to do for us, to us, and through us. And this is at the heart of our last week in our series, What a Wonderful World, where we've explored the Old Testament prophets, looking at their challenges and learning how to see that underneath their critiques are these visions for us in our world that are profoundly beautiful and hopeful. That the prophets challenge brokenness directly, but not for the purpose of despair rather to invite us to see God's vision of goodness for what our world is and what it could be, and then to motivate us to enter into that vision to help bring it into our reality. And forgetting the original purpose of something forms one of the most prevalent themes across the Old Testament prophets. That is forgetting the why of worship what the dictionary defines as the feeling or expression of reverence or adoration for God. Over and over, the prophets confront God's people for forgetting the why of their worship when it comes to God, and in doing so, losing its intended purpose. Something they believe is disastrous for God's people. But underneath their challenges, is this invitation to see this wonderful vision of true worship that changes everything. A vision we will explore today. Now, to understand how worship fits into the prophets, we must start with two things. First, we have to start with what worship is in the story of Israel that the prophets find themselves working within because it isn't quite how we worship at E3 with our electric guitars and all the lights. In the Old Testament, worship is laid out in the Torah or the law, the commandments from God given to his people for how they're supposed to live in the world. And it includes a wide variety of commandments concerning activities and rituals for how God's people are supposed to properly worship God. Some of these are incredibly relatable. Things like prayer, singing, music, fasting, going to the temple together, tithing. Some are odd, but still mostly relatable. Things like mandated festivals or holidays that retell or reenact stories from Israel's past or celebrate certain agricultural seasons like the first harvest. Or things like the Sabbath, the weekly day of rest and reflection on God that kind of reorients their week. 
And then some of these commandments are totally alien to us today as 21st century Americans. In particular, things like sacrifice, sacrificing food or animals to God, sacrificing parts of your harvest to thank God, sacrificing animals to show remorse and make amends for wrongs committed between you and others or you and God. I mean, this is totally outside of our experience of worship. And out of context, what happens is we easily misunderstand these kinds of commandments. We end up reading them as legalistic, burdensome, and oppressive, just rules that God gives us that are impossible to follow. Or sometimes what we we end up doing is we read them as rules that are designed to placate God, where God becomes a kid squishing ants, and worship is our way of convincing him not to squish us. Or the one I see most often is God becomes a cosmic gumball machine, and our worship becomes the quarters we put in to get his blessings. And there's just this, this little problem with those explanations. They're just not biblical which is why we need this second part to understand what worship is in the prophetic message. That is context. How worship fits in the context of the story of God's people. The why of it. And it is grounded in this pattern that is central to their story. So the Bible begins, as we've talked about often, in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible where in chapters 1 through 11, God creates everything good and invites humanity to work alongside him and to be in relationship with him. But as we've talked about, we rebel and we make a mess of the place. So in Genesis 12, God begins this rescue mission for us in our world that sets the course for the biblical story. He calls a man named Abram, later renamed Abraham, who he gives this promise. God says to Abram, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God calls this one family out of all the peoples of the earth and promises them a relationship and blessing, claiming them as his people in the world. And if you notice, we see a three-step pattern that defines how God operates within his people in the midst of this promise. First, we see step one, grace. Do you see any conditions, rules, uh, uh, requirements, or threats connected to this promise and blessing? No, God commits to Abraham and his family before any obligations are given. He meets him and he gives him this promise of blessing and this relationship with him by grace. First and foremost, that's important. Step two, we see that there's a response. Abraham, having been given this invitation freely, must now respond to it. He has to either accept it or not. To choose whether or not to trust that this God means what he's saying and then to follow him where he leads. And Abraham does eventually do this, which leads to step three, mission. And you can't miss this part. People so often miss this part. Notice, God's promises to Abraham, these promises to bless him, have a purpose. It says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The grace 
relationship, blessing, and promise has an outward purpose. God hones in on one family, but universal blessing for the whole world is in view. And apparently it's going to come through Abraham's family. Grace, response, mission. This becomes the foundational three-step pattern of God's relationship with his people throughout their story. Each generation, God calls, blesses, and covenants with his people first, and then asks them to follow and obey him and trust him second. I mean, this is crucial for understanding worship in Israel's story. Worship isn't God giving people oppressive rules or magic tricks they can use to get what they want from him. No, worship in the context of Israel's story is always a response. Step two, it's a response to God's grace. God's people responding to what he has already done for him. I cannot stress enough worship step two after step one of grace. And It's the vehicle through which God intends to move his people into step three, mission. Through worship in the biblical story, we discover over and over again that God intended this activity, these rituals, this way of responding and being in relationship with him after he gives them grace. He intended it to reshape them into this conduit of his blessing to the world. And when you think about worship in that light, suddenly these alien things begin to change. They begin to become more understandable in context. Praising, giving, going to the temple, these aren't just routines. They're activities designed with a purpose to refocus the attention of God's people to the God who saved them. Each week, making them focus on that God, center their lives on that God, and through reflection on him, being transformed to be like him. Or the festivals weren't just holidays. They were regular ways that helped Israel remember their story, to remember God's story of grace throughout generations, and to let those stories change them, how they retold and reenact them. Or the Sabbath. It's not just a day off. It reoriented their entire understanding of time on a weekly basis and reminded them that they're more than their work, that they are inherently cared for and loved by God because he formed the relationship with them. He called them. He promised them blessing before they did anything to earn it. And sacrifice wasn't just the quarters we put into the cosmic gumball machine. It was something that taught us the cost of broken relationships and the crucial importance, the necessity of reconciliation and forgiveness if God's people were going to be what they were created to be, this conduit of blessing in the world. In Israel's story, worship wasn't legalism. It was how God intended to reshape his people into what he created them to be, a pocket of humanity living in this renewed relationship with him and with each other liberated by grace and transformed by their response to that grace, to reflect his character to the world and to invite people to come find the God at their center through how they lived within this world. This is step three 
the intended, necessary, missional purpose of steps one and two. And it's in the failure to get to step three by God's people that the prophets arise and address what's going on in Israel. Because over time, God's people, as we so often do, forgot worship's why. They began to see it just as rules to check off. They began to practice worship without the intended transformation and mission it was supposed to have. And believe it or not, the prophets did not view this kind of worship kindly. They began to call it false worship. The prophet Amos is a particularly good example of this. He was sent on God's behalf to speak to one of Israel's kings, King Jeroboam II. And King Jeroboam II was a powerful military leader. And under his reign, he led Israel to great economic prosperity and wealth. But he's also considered by the prophets one of the most terrible kings in Israel's history. Because under him, this economic prosperity and wealth had led to extreme spiritual apathy in the form of injustice towards the poor. Israel's rich leaders were letting the poor starve. They were selling them into debt slavery, and they were denying them legal representation for profit. All while justifying themselves in this behavior by claiming that they honored God just fine because they were following the right festivals and sacrifices from the law. They were saying, yeah, we promote injustice. Yeah, we trod on the poor, but we're good with God. We've checked off all the right worship boxes, to which Amos says, wrong. This is a sham. And he points directly to this three-step pattern in this powerful way. First, what we find in chapters 1 and 2 of Amos is he calls out the nation surrounding Israel, their enemies. He starts by accusing these other nations of injustice. And you know Amos' audience in Israel was like, get them, God. Those people are the worst. Of course they're unjust. They're not God's people. But, and this is really neat. If you map out the nations that Amos begins by addressing in chapters 1 and 2, you'll see that he's actually drawing a circle around Israel. A bullseye with Israel at the center. And when he's done talking about those other nations... Bam, he lays into Israel with a section that is harsher and three times longer than any of the sections for those other nations. He accuses them of becoming even worse than these nations, that they were supposed to be a godly example to, that they were supposed to reflect God's character to. He says, is this the people God shows by grace and blessed in Genesis 12? Is this the nation that was once denied justice and enslaved in Egypt that God rescued by grace? Is this the nation that I saved? This people who now treats others the exact same way. In Amos chapter five, a passage that became central for Martin Luther King Jr., God lays the smack down. He says, I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't notice all of your choice peace offerings. He doesn't want their sacrifices. Get this, away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your hearts. Instead, I want to see a mighty 
flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. Amos says, worship of this God cannot be separated from the transformation of our relationships and how God's people treat other human beings, especially the most vulnerable. And then he says, let me tell you what true worship is. It's when justice flows like a river and righteousness like an unfailing stream. And these two words are crucial for the prophets. Righteousness or tzedakah in Hebrew is the right equitable relationships between people, no matter their social status, that God intended for humanity. And then there's justice or mishpat, which refers to the concrete actions that God commanded his people to take to correct injustice and to recreate righteousness when it's broken. Amos says true worship needs to make these two things, righteousness, justice, tzedakah, mishpat, things that saturate God's people, like a rushing stream that fills a dry riverbed, flooding into our world through how they live. Or how about this one? The prophet Isaiah put it this way in probably my favorite passage from the Old Testament. It's in chapter 58. God says, shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and yet you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is this not the kind of fast that I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood, then only then will your light break forth like the dawn and your healing quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then, listen to this, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noon day. For the prophets, seeking God is synonymous with seeking justice, righteousness, and loving our neighbor. God choosing his people by grace was a great blessing in the prophet's eyes, but it was one that held great responsibility once accepted. To become a people who in response to their blessing become 
a blessing to the world. These passages remind us that true worship was always intended to do something for us, to us, and through us in the world in which we live, in God's good world. It was intended to transform us into people through whom God looses the chains of injustice, sets the oppressed free, and breaks every yoke that binds human beings. That we truly worship God by responding to brokenness as he does, sharing our food with the hungry, giving shelter to the wanderer, clothing the naked, and caring for others like ourselves. The prophets believe that worship without that is hollow, rote, and a forgetting of what it was intended to be in the first place. But, like Isaiah says, if we seek this true worship, if we accept God's grace and respond to it by reflecting him out into our world, Isaiah says, God will make us into people whose very lives are a light in the darkest places of our world who become people through how they live that invite others to find God, to healing, to find new life in him. This is what worship invites us to be. And I want to close with a story, a parable really, to reflect on. It's one I heard a while back that's always stuck with me. There was a woman who loved God and wanted to evangelize in a distant city, one that she had never been to. And so she moved there, entering into the community and working for years to raise the funds to pay for the Holy Scriptures to be translated into the native tongue of the people who lived there, so that she could give them the Scriptures and let them know about her God from them. But right when she had worked for years and had earned enough money to pay for the translation, a famine struck the city. And without hesitation, she took all that she had raised for the translation and used it to feed the poor and the starving in the city. She opened up her home as a food bank. She bought bread. She saved many lives. And once the famine passed, she went back to work for many more years, seeking to raise the funds for this translation again. But once more, when she had finally raised enough money, a plague hit. And again, without hesitation, she spent all she had on medical supplies. She turned her home into a hospital, and she saved many lives. And eventually the plague passed, and she went back to work. But now she was very old, and before she could make enough money to translate the scriptures, she died. But after her death, many of those that she had saved, who had grown to love and admire her, who had lived their lives alongside her and seen who she was, well, to honor her, they donated their own money. They took the scriptures. They had them translated, and they distributed them throughout the city. And among everyone in the city, especially amongst those who knew her, everyone said the same thing. The story of the God in these scriptures was taught to us three times. 
twice through this woman's life and once in writing, but it was only the first two that showed us that they were true. That is what it means to be a light in the darkness. That is true worship, this wonderful vision of worship that the prophets invite us to find, be changed by, to live. Amen. Amen. So, as we head into communion, a sacrament of worship for our God that reminds us of how he sacrificed everything in love for us. And then, as we head into Advent next week, a time of reflection on how God came to meet us where we were at to bring his kingdom through a baby, to meet us, to set us free, as we head into that season that tells us that these prophetic truths rushed into our world in this moment where God became flesh. I invite you to reflect on what true worship means and what it calls us to be. So, on the night that our king gave himself up for us, he took bread, gave thanks to God, broke the bread, and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After they had eaten the bread, he took the cup, he lifted it. And when the supper was over, he said, Thank you, God. And he gave it to his disciples and said, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father God, pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them for us the body and blood of Christ that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood, a people of true worship who through how they live see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Help us stay true. Help us remember. We thank you, God. Amen.